Welcome to the Myofascial Health Podcast, hosted by me, Unu. Follow along as I explore the depths of John Barnes' myofascial release approach on my road to mastery. Along the way, I'll be sharing the lessons I learn as I open my myofascial release practice in Austin, Texas, so that you don't have to make the same mistakes I do. Welcome back to the Myofascial Health Podcast. I am here taking Equine 1 MFR in Las Vegas, and I'm joined by the instructor, Tamara Thomas. Thanks so much for jumping on the pod. You're welcome. So this has been a great seminar already, and you've been able to share some insights with me. I've been able to deepen my understanding and my feel for MFR. Can you talk me through how you got into this work? Yeah, just... By accident. So John Barnes, I was taking his seminars, his human seminars, and during the seminars he started talking about treating horses. And I was just mesmerized by that because I'm a horse person. Horses have been my passion my whole life. And I wanted to do something with them. And early on I thought I wanted to be a vet, but really um, I was more interested in quality of movement. So when I heard that John was able to treat horses myofascially, I approached him. And later on, when I went to his clinic, took me to treat a horse. And what was that experience like? Like, was it close to where you were living? How did that even transpire? No, I had gone to his clinic to spend a week there studying with him. And... I, he remembered that I wanted to work with horses, and so he arranged it. And another student that was at the clinic with us, we all went together. And to me, it was such a big deal because I hadn't been in a barn where someone has to handle the horse. And um, this, is, this was a racehorse, a stallion, and I wasn't used to that sort of thing. And such a well well-designed barn and incredible horse. And um, so I hadn't been around that sort of before. And just being able to work with John Barnes and watch how he approached the animal and learn from him that way. And then my comfort with the horse was just made it an excellent experience. And, and I can't tell you, I, I really just didn't even have any words to describe it. It, it turned my world upside down. It really did. And did you have any idea that this was even possible? I had no idea it was possible. And at the moment, it was just being in the experience. And it wasn't until a couple of years later that Mark Barnes, John Barnes' son, created this equine myofascial release class. And I went and took that. And, you know, I'm a PT. I was working in a clinic. and being the rehab director, so never in a million years did I expect that I could make a business of this. But I was just doing it for fun. I got home from the class, started treating friends' horses and putting treatments together, and pretty soon I just started getting more requests, and it very slowly became a side business that pretty soon I had to uh, decide if I was going to do this for work or not. It took a couple of years. Um, but I finally just quit my job and took my show on the road. 
And what made you decide to quit your job for this new thing that hadn't existed? You know, you didn't know if it could be successful or not. What was that compelling moment for you to say, I have to do this? Well, so at first, I just didn't think there was any possible way this could be a business. And I worked with another person and we, we started going to local bars and then we got into training bars. And as we were in this one training barn, they had other trainers they were contacting that were in Kentucky and they started asking them, how are you solving these problems? And finally, they admitted that they were getting the myofascial work. So pretty soon we were making trips to Kentucky and taking time off work to do it. And pretty soon all my vacation was gone. And I was just getting busier and busier in barns. And finally, I said to myself, if we're either going to do this for a business or not, because if you start saying, no, I can't come, then pretty soon the word of mouth is they can't come. So it, the work was so steady that I decided to take risk. And it was definitely a leap of faith of, of just deciding I could make a go of it. And it was just staying steady enough work for a couple of years that I just ditched my full-time job and jumped on. I love that. Um, the reason I ask is because when I was starting my own practice, they say that you're supposed to pick a niche, right? If you're marketing to everybody, you're not marketing to anybody. And so for me, I was a rock climber. And I wanted to work with climbers, but I went on a climbing trip to Waco Tanks. Now, something in the climbing community is a term called dirtbags, where uh, climbers will live out of their vans. They'll drive around just to climb. Like, it's such an obsessive sport, and they're willing to do that. And when I was on this Waco trip, I met some climbers who were dirtbaggers. And in my mind, I thought, there is no way... Climbers are going to want to pay for physical therapy, especially at the price that I wanted to charge. So I ended up not going in that direction. And I made the decision to try to help uh, central market moms, if you can believe that. I had taken John's women's health course. I could see the value in the work. I thought, hey, women are going to need this. Moms are going to be busy. That's where I'm going to be able to settle in. And then Things will happen for you if you're on your right path. So that was literally me making the wrong decision. And I had a friend who injured her shoulder um, while snowboarding. And she had come back and said like, hey, my shoulder's messed up. I have seen a massage therapist, but haven't been able to get back to climbing. Would you be able to help me? And of course, I said, yes, she was a, a good friend of mine. And I fixed her up, got her back to climbing. And it wasn't until that moment where I realized this is exactly what I want to do. Whether it is successful or not, I want to do it because I love it, right? Like I'm willing to do it just to see where it goes. And then I set parameters for myself. So climbing was going to be debuted in the Olympics. And I thought, you know, I'm just going to do it for a year and see where I'm at and see where this goes. And if it flops by the Olympics, then I can always change my path. But, uh, pandemic happened. Um, but after that year, I recognized not only could it work, but I could literally be in the position to take it as far as I could possibly take it, which no one in my area could do. But there's a lot of imposter syndrome that I had to get over that. So 
I think I love that you just followed your passion. It was a genuine love. I think when I see you working with horses and Kenny working with horses, there is a genuine love about helping the animals. Um, and so before we get into the horse equine therapy, can I ask, how did you go about getting introduced to John Barnes' work? Because it seems like you're a physical therapist who met John and John was able to help you find equine therapy. But uh, there was a point in your life where you didn't even recognize what myofascial release was or, was, or were aware of it. Yeah, I was very lucky to be introduced to John Barnes really early in my career. And while I was still a student in physical therapy school, we went off to our clinicals and I knew that I wanted to work eventually in outpatient therapy after I made the rounds through the other therapies. But I went to a private outpatient clinic and all of the, all of the therapists in the clinic had been to John Barnes myofascial release one. And then I arrived and Every one of those therapists were on fire with the work. They were so excited. And so teaching me, they were taking my hands and showing me what they had learned in the class. And it was crazy. I I just took to it like a fish. And my clients were making big strides. And it, it was just so nice because I had been very disappointed with what we had been taught in PT school for the outpatient therapy. It was electrical stimulation, ultrasound, diathermy, hot packs, cold packs, and then handing uh, an exercise program. And there really wasn't any hands-on work with with the client. And I was very disappointed because I thought to myself, I spent all these hours up every night studying, trying to be a therapist, trying to make it make high grades and all that. And then here I am sticking electrodes on people for maybe 20 minutes of relief. And I was very disappointed with the training. And to find my way to myofascial release like that was, it was just a gift. And I think the stars were lined up. And I, I definitely feel like that was similar in my path. Um, what I agree with your journey is that PT school, unfortunately, is just, um, in my opinion, obviously, just a way for physical therapy schools to make a lot of money, right? Because we're learning things that have been taught since the 60s. You know, it doesn't seem like there's been any development in the program quality, and it's all to take a test that you can pass to get your license. Um, but the research has been out. There's systematic re- reviews that are literally the top of research that shows that ultras- ultrasound and electrical stimulation don't have any long-term benefits. But uh, what I believe that they are still being used for is because, one, they cost a lot of money to produce, and so it can be sold. But two, it allows therapists to stack their patients, to treat three to four patients at the same time. and um, I was lucky enough not to be stuck in one of those clinics, but just having to juggle two at a time and rationalize, hey, well, there's other clinics that have to treat three or four. Uh, I kind of made do with it, but I knew that I could provide a higher level service if I could see patients one-on-one, but in insurance-based models, that's just not possible. 
And um, and so, yeah, I happened to find my way to myofascial release. The interesting thing is I didn't take to it as quickly as you did. And so um, can you walk me through, you know, was it an accepted thing for you? Uh, were the people that you're around as on fire about it as you were? Or was there a little bit of resistance? So in that clinic where I learned, um, they just were into it. and. And because I got treated by them with the myofascial techniques, I could feel the changes in my body. And for me to feel the changes under my hands with the client and to watch the improvement and also feel it in my body was enough for me. I didn't need a scientific report and I didn't need any studies. The proof was there. And that's how I grasped onto it by six weeks of watching people get better and take to it and feel the releases in their body and feel the improvement the the patients were telling me. So, but it was very disappointing when I went back to my school and wanted to share it with everyone because it seemed like new information. Like here we are stuck in the sixties, like you said, with, electrical stimulation and stretching and exercise. And even though we're giving stretching and exercise, the patients still weren't getting better. There was something more that needed to happen. And I felt like I had found this gem of something. And unfortunately, my professors were not interested. They did not feel like it was scientific. Uh, They actually took me out in the hallway after I had presented it to my um, to the other students in the in the class with my enthusiasm and they told me not to speak about it anymore because it was just not scientific based the APTA did not accept it and they did not want me to talk about it anymore and so um i was also a rebel in pt school now unfortunately for my situation I didn't have a cause to fight for, like myofascial release. I was just very much against the dress code, which I understand now isn't something you should fight so hard for. Um, But I recognize, hey, there's this what John calls consensus consciousness, where when everyone's doing it, that just seems to be the tradition. And I think one of the scariest things that you can hear, especially in healthcare, is, hey, why are we doing this thing? And if they just say, well, this is just the way that we've always been doing it, then there's not really evidence for that. All that means is, you know, we've been doing things for X amount of years, and that just seems to be the standard. But when you finally find the thing that can help the patient, and in healthcare, I would hope that that would be the number one priority is to help the patient. Uh, Unfortunately, now it's more about productivity. But those who have found this work, I think we have a genuine interest in helping the patient and client, whether that be humans or horses. That is the reason why a lot of us find this work. Now, um, when you took your first course, what was that like? Did you have a feeling of like, this is exactly what I've been looking for and has been missing? Or was there a little bit of uh, resistance because this work can be very, uh, it can cut against the grain very much. I did not feel uncomfortable whatsoever. I really took to this work. 
And I think because I did have that introduction in my clinical and I had already seen the improvement, I was just so ready to dive into this and learn from John Barnes. And allowing the work to be done to yourself and and then practicing on another person and seeing the changes right there under your hands. And then a couple of days of improvement, of solidly getting techniques one right after the other and seeing the changes in your body and different partners and hearing what's going on from other people and their experiences. That's really all I needed. Okay, and uh, were most of the participants, were they massage therapists, PTs, chiropractors? What was, what was the survey of the land? At that time in the late 80s, I, um, I believe my first class was 89, it was mostly PTs. And a lot of them looking for something to help patients. They were all like hoping there's more to do than ultrasound and e-stem and stretching and exercise okay so one i remember hearing that there was a time when john barnes used to call physical therapy parking lot therapy because you know you'd feel good while you're in the clinic but by the time you walked back into the parking lot to your car your symptoms and your pains would return and then there was a transition to allow massage therapists to take it And I think I heard that that's what helped it kind of flourish. Now, I ask because my experience is very different. It seems like you're a quick learner. Maybe I'm just a slow learner. But uh, when I took my first course, MFR1, it was so different and unexpected from any other CEU course that I had taken. You know, normally there's heavy lecture, uh, evidence, anatomy, physiology. Whereas with John, he does teach much about the fascial system, but it's very much hands-on and you had to bring your own table. And that was never anything that I had experienced before. And in Austin, we have a slogan in our city. It is keep Austin weird. And so when you have massage therapists from Austin, it brings a weird crowd. Okay. And so when I showed up to my first MFR1 class, You know, there's an aroma of essential oils, tons of man buns, people wearing tunics. And I just remember thinking, what did I just get myself into? And then on top of that, when he was demonstrating certain techniques, something that can happen is an unwinding process. And the first time that I saw that, it was a woman named Diane Hargroder, runs a very successful practice in San Antonio. But it looked like she was having an exorcism on the stage. And I remember thinking, oh, my gosh, she's having a seizure. Is she okay? Should someone call an ambulance, 911? But as I'm looking around, no one is having any kind of reaction like I'm having. Everyone is just looking at it like it's a normal thing. And I'm like, what is going on? So then she comes out of it. She shares her experience. And that's when I was like, oh, my God, what is this? Like, Either this is the best thing since sliced bread or it is the biggest sham in the world. And this was just a paid person to jump on stage and, you know, vouch for John. And so I went on this journey of taking courses to figure out, was this real or was it a sham? And the thing with me, though, is I, even in my first class, there were participants that I worked with who were unwinding. 
And I remember people looking at me and saying like, man, you're, you're doing a great job with this. You know, it seems like you have a sense for it. And I remember there was a woman, her name is Paige, and asked me, you know, are you going to continue on with this work? And I remember saying, no, nah, I don't think this is for me. It's a little bit too out there for me. And it's funny to think about that moment now because now my life revolves around myofascial release. But when I was able to help people unwind themselves and then feeling pretty good about myself, and then when I try to do that to my clients outside of the seminar, nothing happened, you know? And I very much got in my head like, normally something happens. And he uh, explained at that time that you had to hold it for an eight minute uh, release. And I remember thinking and working with clients and holding holds for 30 minutes because I was like, something normally happens, you know? And I think now I recognize that an unwinding doesn't have to be this huge convulsive response that John gets. Sometimes it's very subtle. Sometimes they don't move at all, but the releases are internal. And that is just as impactful as a big unwinding. And, uh, and it's taken me some time to get to this place. But I remember being very resistant to the work and to hear you say it was automatically something that you picked up as a PT. Uh, it's great to hear how other people find this work. And it just seems like you're much more receptive to the things that you feel versus me. I sometimes have to convince myself, which is a channel five trait that I seem to have. Now, you know, we have our gripes about PT school. And, uh, and we found myofascial release, which, you know, you don't necessarily have to be a, t a PT. Something that John says is, hey, just go and get your massage therapy license so that you can have a license to put your hands on people. And then you can just take these courses to do the work and live life uh, in Channel 3. What would you say to, let's say, a student um, about to graduate from college thinking about being a PT, what would you say to them in today's era? You know, I do love being a PT. I love the training I had as far as um, the anatomy, the physiology, all of it. Um, neuro, I loved all that. And I feel like it gave me a lot of information, a lot of knowledge, a lot of well-rounded. But we do have to give respect to the fact that physical therapy is enormous field. And it's very hard to kind of compile all that. And you're really only learning tidbits of basic cookbook of things. And I do know that now myofascial release is in PT schools. And I appreciate that. So I just appreciate being a PT and I I I would encourage people to go ahead. Um, but now we're starting to get into a little bit more direct access things. Um, and, you know, it's, it's always growing and evolving. And um, while we do get held up some by insurance companies and whatnot, I could still do the work all this time, even though I'm in a limited direct access state. Doctors were willing to give me the scripts and people would say, well, what do I need to do to get into you? And I'd say, get a script from a doctor. And I don't mind educating. I don't mind educating physicians and letting them know. It seems now I don't have to introduce people to myofascial release. They already know about it and want the work. We just have to get the script. And so what, what I would tell someone, if you love PT, be a PT. 
take it where you want to be. Be a pioneer in the work and take it and grow and keep educated. That's all we can. I, I love that because it seems like you are, uh, you stand by being a PT, you advocate for the profession. I too enjoy being a PT, you know, um, something about Asian culture is if you have the doctor title, that reigns supreme. But when you finally get that title and you grow up with everyone around you saying that it's going to be this, this great achievement, when you finally get that, you recognize that it's just a title. And it doesn't mean that you're a good therapist, that you can even help people. And I would say the people who hold on to that title have an ego about them, whether it's a physician, a PT, anyone who has this doctor title, and it kind of takes away from the patient care. Now, the reason I kind of lean towards John's favor is because today PT school is very expensive. You know, I think you're ta- some programs I hear are like $200,000 of, of tuition and uh, outpatient physical therapy because it's so highly taught, uh, so highly touted. Because there's such a huge pool of PTs who want to do that, then oftentimes they get paid much less versus if you work in the hospital, you have the ability to make more. And so sometimes if you don't have that foresight to think about those things, I mean, if you, if you want to start your own business, that's one thing because uh, you have that avenue. But if you, let's say, go into debt for $200,000 and you get an outpatient orthopedic job of $65,000, then you are signing yourself up for a lifetime of debt. And I don't think that it's smart to just be one of those people who's like, I'm just going to pay for this for the rest of my life and accept that, you know? So if it's for you, and I think only you can answer that. So even when John says, you don't need to be a PT, you should just be a massage therapist. And you have that burning desire in your heart to say, I really want to be a PT. That is what is going to define your moment. And that is what happened for me, because I think if you would have told the younger version of myself uh, lost in what to do with the kinesiology degree and wanting to become a PT, there's nothing you could have told that kid to, to get him off of his track. And I think that's what it is a lot of times for us. Um, and so uh, I asked because it seems like you had the opportunity to take a class of John's with your daughter, and he had a little spiel about that, and there's a little disagreement. Oh, right. So uh, John Barnes did bring up to my daughter, who was 15 at the time she took the healing seminar, that she didn't have to go to college. She could just be a massage therapist. And then uh, as she got a little kind of smart aleck teenager, she would be throwing that at my face. Oh, well, John Barnes says. And really, my point was not that you just don't have to go to school or you do have to go to school. It was like, if you want education, you can experience it. You know, it does give you some opportunities to think about other things while you're there and there's a growth. But I wasn't pushing her. Um, she was more uh, throwing it in my face. Well, John Barnes says, because she was 15 and she could throw it at her mama. Yeah. <laughs> I hear you. Okay. So, so then we learn that you take myofascial release, you get into equine. Now, 
let's talk about a little bit of the business side. You know, I think when you are getting into this work, especially when you have no one else to kind of show you how it's done, it can be very scary. So how did you go about taking the steps to jumping in full time, committing to it, but then actually making a business out of it? Yeah. So I am not a risk taker. So it was difficult for me. And I just started reaching out to friends and um, telling all kinds of people, patients, whoever, that I was now treating horses. And that's how I started getting clients. And I waited uh, a while before I started charging people because I really wanted to get it down. And I really was just having fun because at the time, no one was treating horses like that. There weren't professions like that. And so it it was even more risky as, as just a business. But I was staying so steady with the work. At the same time, we had the HMOs coming. And people in my clinic were asking me to treat them privately because they couldn't get very many treatments. So I started treating people outside of work, and then those people would be related to people that had horses, and pretty soon I'm treating the horse and the rider. So that became my niche that you were talking about earlier, that I wanted to treat the horse and the rider. And sometimes I would run into physician friends, and I would let them know that I was treating horses. And they started telling people. And ultimately, because of the quality work I had done as a physical therapist, and those physicians trusting me enough to tell people about my work, that's how my business started. Um, They trusted their physicians. So next thing I knew, I was in bigger training barns. And when I went to a training barn where there's 40 horses in training, The trainers would notice the difference in the horses and how much better they were performing. And pretty soon, each time I go, I'm having more and more horses. And pretty soon, it's not just going there to treat one or two horses. I'm there treating four or five horses. Or then I'm there for two days. And then those trainers tell someone else, and then pretty soon I'm traveling. So the the work kept piling up enough that I just had to make a business. And I did other things, too. going to horse shows and walking around and talking to people and telling them what I could do. There was in the beginning, there was a lot of education because there just wasn't the profession of of people treating horses. And I think what we can learn from that is one, you're able to do something you love and in doing so you're willing to do it for free. I think a lot of times, especially in business, it's about how much money can you make? And that often leads us down a path that we're not supposed to be on. You know, I made that decision to try to work with moms for the monetary decision, but where my heart was was with climbers. And so when I finally accepted that, the path unfolded for me. Um, And I also think what was important that I'm hearing is you put yourself out there. You know, you, you speak about it as an education standpoint, but I think sometimes people will learn the work, they see the value in myofascial release, and then they say, okay, well, I want to start my own business. And John says that everyone's looking for it, and that's all I need to do. It's more of a field of dreams approach where they think, you know, if I build it, then they will come. 
And that's not necessarily true, especially in business. Just because you know how to do the work doesn't mean that other people know that you know how to do it. And so whether you're going to shows, whether you're going to barns and talking to people, you put yourself out there enough to where other people finally could learn about your work. Can I ask, how long were you doing free treatments? I did free treatments for about two years. And um, I would say because nobody else was out there doing this kind of work, you know, I wasn't even considering it at first being a business. And then I started doing something called the crazy list. And I would write down the craziest thing that could happen. And I put in this book on the crazy list, the craziest thing that would happen. And the most fun thing that would happen is if I could do it for a living, even though nobody else was. Never ran into anybody else that was doing this kind of work. And so I kept like putting that belief out there and just kept at it slowly. And then, then I started to see, I think this can be a business. And that's how it happened. And, and then um, the work just kept building and building until pretty soon I was just ditched my job. That is so comforting to hear and very impressive, I just want to say, because, you know, when people say, okay, yeah, I'm willing to do it for free, they do it for a couple of weeks, maybe a couple of months. But for two years, to do something just because you love it for two years, not knowing that it could even be anything, and it could be nothing, but you're willing to take that risk and gamble anyways because you do truly love working with horses, uh, I think that's something that we can all learn from is sometimes it takes that perseverance for a lengthy amount of time, two years. And then on top of that, there is what I would call as a law of the universe, which is if you give, then you'll get. Now, some people will misinterpret that and they'll say, okay, I'm giving, now I need to get, right? And the true feeling of giving is being able to give something without expecting anything in return. I think once you get to that point and it's truly a feeling that you have that the universe finds, finds a way to reward you for those efforts, right? You found patients who, had, who knew people who had horses and referred you, but it was because you were able to put in that work of not getting paid for two years. Now, the crazy list is such a great uh, thing to have. You know, I think sometimes we shoot for the stars so we can land on the moon. Other people shoot for the mountain and then they land in the valley, you know? So it's really about what is something in my wildest dreams that might not even happen. But once you write it down, then it's almost like, hey, you're telling the universe that you want this to happen. And I find that the universe has a funny way of helping you succeed in the goals that you put out for. Now, did you have any sort of faith with that? Any limiting beliefs that you had to overcome? How did you you even process that? Oh, there were definitely limiting beliefs. And for one, what I created for myself was the money. I mean, I was in a really big job at the hospital. I was director of rehab. I had uh, 40 therapists under me. Um, I had continuous doctor referrals for the myofascial work. And I was pretty set. I mean, I had a 
I had a big salary. And to walk away from that when you've got a 401k, the nice salary, the constant referrals and sick pay and vacation pay and all that, it was hard. And, you know, I, I was very poor for a long time. I put myself through college as a single mother. And to then walk away from that is difficult. And I just wasn't sure that the horses would pay the bills. I mean, horse business can be very soft. If they don't truly grasp what they're doing, they must, might just go to the next thing or the next thing, the next golden star that comes up and might make them win the race or win the blue ribbon. And so it felt pretty risky. But the more I got into it, And the more people that would see it, I realized I just couldn't walk away from it. And I just took that leap of faith somehow. So my limiting belief really was about money and survival. And um, that was my most difficult part. Okay. Okay. It's good to hear that other people in wild fashion beliefs have these limiting beliefs. I think it's great to acknowledge that they're normal. And for you to take such a huge risk... From a great paying job, you had the status of being the director, and you walked away, which I don't think a lot of people have the courage to do. Now, let's say you're someone like me who doesn't have a background with horses, and um, you know, taking my first equine course, and I'm like, yeah, I think I want to do this. How would you? How would you coach them through starting their own thing? Yeah, and actually, you kind of remind me of another person. Uh, another male that took my job and his passion was motocross riders. And so he had been treating motocross riders, knew nothing about horses and came to the classes, was doing really well, just like you are, had a great feel, but he knew nothing about horses. So I just said to him, go into a training barn, take some classes on handling, really figure out how to put on the halter, how to lead the horse, how to pick up their legs, how to square them up, how to move them around, how to get them out of the stall or out of the pasture yourself, because you really have to be confident with that kind of thing. The owners of the horses or the trainers of these horses are responsible for them. And some of these horses are worth a lot of money and some of them just mean so much to the owner. They're like their babies. And so you have to be the one that feels confident and getting that training under your belt will really help you be confident going into a barn and be trusted by someone. I would agree with that because when I watch you and Kenny work with horses, you have a natural presence about it. Whereas I'm a little timid and I know that the horse can feel that sometimes. Whereas there's a great horse that we are working with. His name is Griff. And he's this, this big horse. Um, and when he starts nipping at me, I don't know how to make him stop. But when he's bumping into you, you hold your space and you like, you treat him like, I don't know, it's like a, like a yappy dog. Like you tell that dog what to do and you can hold your space and you are, uh, by no offense by this, but you're, you're uh, not as, you don't have, we don't have the same stature as Kenny who has a bigger presence about him. You're like a tiny person. And so I think for me, if I wanted to pursue this work, 
Uh, I should definitely, I, I see total value in getting handling training, being comfortable around horses because they do feel your energy. You know, even as you're approaching them, they can sense what you're feeling uh, or how you're feeling. And you're not going to get a horse to do anything that it doesn't want to do. So if you're not present, if you're not centered, if you're not intentional with everything that you're doing, the horse is going to let you know. Uh, one of the things I've really enjoyed taking this course is I wanted to deepen my understanding and my feeling for myofascial release. And when you're working with horses, they are very receptive to the work if you hold true to the myofascial release principles. But if you start thinking about something else, or I have to check in for my flight, or what are we going to eat for dinner, or anything along those lines, the horse will know you're not engaged and it'll start to move away from you. Versus if you're really in that zone, it'll start to relax and you can even see them go into the hypnagogic state. And that is when you know you're doing it correctly. But if you're, you know, some people are more energy based, they have a very light touch, a horse will think you're a fly and swat your hand, you know? So it's, it's definitely one of those things that I'm grateful that I've been able to take. But what I recognize is uh, I never say never. I think I enjoy the work of my fascia release, but especially when I watch you and Kenny doing this work, there is a love component that I'm not sure that I have. So never say never. I can always maybe develop that if I find a, a reason for it. But um, there's, I just think that it's such a great opportunity to learn the handling techniques because even though I, have a, I feel like I have a good touch and I can do the work, there is that presence part of it that I need to be uh, coached on. Now, in this crazy book, um, did you ever write about Becoming part of a herd. Oh, you know, I don't think I wrote that in the crazy book, but um, by accident, I did get into um, a location I work in where they have us work in the entire herd at one time, and the horses get to choose if they get therapy. And it's a really interesting approach. So it's not as if the horse gets to push you, like you were saying, you didn't know yet how to stand your ground and hold your space and show the horse that you're in charge. But if the horse really does not want to have therapy in this herd I work in, they don't have to. And we started by offering the work to them, by holding out the halter, and if they would approach and put their head in the halter, then we would begin to do the treatment. And it's really been interesting to be in that herd and see the dynamics of the herd and know that, okay, here's the herd boss coming in while you're trying to do a treatment, so you're going to have to be careful because he's going to use his presence or his energy to move the horses away. And that thing is managed within the treatment. But at the same time, you're aware of the herd dynamics and aware of what's going on with body language and horses calling other horses and mothers and babies and pairings of different horses. And then the entire energy of the whole herd being there together. It's just been a phenomenal 
treat for me to be in something like that. And also very rare because most of the work I do, the horses are in training, they're in stalls or they're in smaller paddocks and they're not really working in the entire herd dynamic. So it's been such a treat to be part of that. Now, did you have to do anything to win them over? Like uh, I think of Jane Goodall when she worked with gorillas. She had to be on the outside for such a long period until she gained their trust. Or is it the presence that you hold? Is the, does the work speak for itself? Is it just your experience with horses? How, do you, how did you navigate that? You know, it just began very slowly. I respected their learning. They respected mine. I spoke with my hands on their body. And just really sinking into the fascial system, maintaining a mental picture of I'm there to help them. I'm working in their fascial system and communicate telepathically through them. Just like keep presenting that in my mind, trying to keep my mind uncluttered of other things. Like you were saying, if you think of your dental appointment or you think you're checking into your flight, well, that interrupts your work. And the horses pick that information up. So really staying grounded and centered and present and presenting that clear picture that I'm here to help them really helped me ease into the the herd and then gain their trust. And yes, it took some time, but probably not as much time as working with wild animals because all these horses have been trained and handled. So not quite as far as Jane Goodall, but again, being trusted and accepted by the herd is, is really, oh, it's, I can't even tell you how wonderful that is. That is great. Um, something that you mentioned was a telepathic ability. And now what's funny is I can think back and there was a moment in my life, especially at that person in PT school, where if I would have heard someone say that, I would have thought it was woo-woo to the max, and I would have questioned your integrity. What kind of telepathic uh, messages or, or abilities are you speaking about, and is there any particular story that you can share about them? I, I do have a story, um, but horses speak to each other telepathically by presenting pictures to one another. And I am not considering myself an animal communicator, but there are times that I pick up messages from the horses. And one particular time early on, because I remember when this first started happening, and it was a shock to me, but I was went to work on a saddlebred horse who was in his stall. I had worked on this horse before several times, and this time he just seemed different. His attitude seemed different. And as I had my hands on him, I suddenly saw a blur of green. And I thought, what is that? And I could see it clearly in my mind, this blur of green. And he showed me again. And it took me a minute to realize that this was the horse telepathically giving me this information. And I had to step back for a minute and think about it because I hadn't really experienced anything like this. And I was working with a partner at the time 
and she had on a green shirt. And he was not a biter, but he reached down and grabbed her shirt and just pulled it. Well, so we're like, what is that? What, what is he trying to tell us? So we knew the trainer wouldn't consider any kind of this information. We couldn't speak to him about telepathy. But I said to him, has something happened to Abner? And he said, oh, yes. Last night, he broke out of the stall, and he ran all around the property. And at that time, it was springtime in Kentucky, and it was everything was green. And he was literally showing me the, the green that he was running past. That's what he was showing me straight out of his eye and then pulling on the green shirt. And that's what I believe he was trying to tell us is that he got out and he saw all this green. That's awesome. Uh, I think when we're in Channel 3, we get communicated with symbols, whether it be pictures or colors. Now, we happen to be in Vegas right now, and I can't help but think of Elvis. Do you have a story to share about Elvis? Oh, Elvis. Okay. So one time I'm working on this in this big herd of horses. Kenny and I were. And they tell me that this horse is named Elvis. And he's just, he's not even the horse I'm working on. He just came up. He is actually the herd boss. And he came up and he was just being very peaceful and practically sleeping. And he says to me, I, I hear. My name is an Elvis. And I, I said to the trainer, he says his name's not Elvis. And she said, well, it wasn't his name. Uh, the owner's son decided to call him Elvis. And so they just started calling him Elvis. And he said, but it's okay if they call me that. And the trainer says, well, ask him what is his name. And I thought, well, okay, I'm not, I'll try to be clear with this. But again, I'm not an animal communicator. And he says to me, my name is Sando. And I thought, what am I hearing? And that it, it's sort of like a whisper. It comes out, Sando, like that. And I tell her, that's how it sounds to me. And so they actually changed his name to that. They still kind of called him both, but they started calling him a Sando because that's what he said his name was. And Kenny was there, and he looked over at Elvis, and he said, well, I'm still going to call you Elvis. And literally, he sneered. He lifted his lip and scrunched up his nostril and looked straight at Kenny and turned and walked away and left. The proverbial middle finger as he walked out. <laughs> That's great. Kenny told that story and I just loved it. I'm glad that you were able to share your perspective on that. Is there anything else you'd like the, the audience to know? Anything you'd like to share? You know, lately I have been looking back on my career and um, I'm also a dancer. And that's how I got into quality of motion. and. My ballet teacher is 86, and she spent her entire lifetime with her passion. She loves ballet. She teaches ballet. Still at 86, she can move so much better than other dancers and other, other people her age. 
And she knows dancers and she knows dancers in different performances and music and timing. And I was thinking about that and I thought to myself, you know, I've been able to do that too. I've really been able to live my passion. And I found a way to be with horses and work with horses and help horses. And I love it so much. And I'm so happy that I can help the horses. And then with teaching the equine myofascial release program, that was such a gift to me. And I'm not taking it lightly. I've taken the class and added things in and read assessments of the class and talked to different students and talked to professors about how to make the class better and how to allow this work to sink in. And I followed John Barnes and assisted with, I can't tell you how many myofascial release courses and watched what he did and how he helped people learn. And I knew that I was going to be a myofascial release educator. And I've been able to combine those passions of myofascial release that I am so passionate about and the equine work and the horses. And I would say, if you can follow your passion, do it. If you can follow your passion, do it. I can tell you that at the point when I was ready to go into the myofascial work with the horses, work had become so hard because of the insurance-driven therapy. And my bosses, the, the vice presidents and the, and the CEO of the hospital, were telling me, you cannot do hands-on work anymore. You have to have three and four patients at one time because we're not covering the bills. And I said, I can't do it. It's un I said to them, that's unethical. I would sit in my car and cry before I walked into it because I didn't know what I was going to be able to do. Was I going to take that script from the doctors I had built all this relationship with on helping their patient and not do myofascial work? Was I going to revert to e-stim and ultrasound where we had started so long ago? And I said, no, I'm walking away. I'm following my passion. And if you can follow your passion and live your life that way, you've lived a life. I resonate with that so much. Um, I think I can remember one of the defining moments for me leaving my, my job as a physical therapist in an outpatient clinic was I had gotten a script to see a patient for two to three times per week for six to eight weeks. And based on their condition, I thought they only needed to see me for twice a week uh, for six weeks. But then I saw that they started getting scheduled three times per week. And I was like, what's going on? I said that, that this person only needed to be seen twice per week. And it was the office manager who said, you're leaving money on the table by seeing them three times or only two times per week. We, we need you to see them for three. And I thought, I thought that physical therapy was to help the patient. And part of that is making sure that they get the best that they can in, the, in what I consider the smallest amount of appointments because they're charging a lot. And so once I had that moment, I knew that I couldn't be in this insurance-based model. So I completely agree. If you can find your passion and follow it, 
there's going to be some big risks that you take. It's going to be scary, but that's what makes it worth it. Now, how can people find you? Okay, so for the equine myofascial release course, equinemyofascialrelease.com, the classes will be listed on my website. And they can reach me by email on my website and if they want to schedule either horses or themselves. So my, my website is really designed for the seminars, but I do have a tab on there about Perfect. And then this is not to put pressure on you. I just want you to say it so that the universe hears you. But when is Equine 3 going to be available? Well, I am hoping by no later than the end of this year. I've been really putting a lot into it. And for, for a time, I, um, I had some stress in my life and couldn't really be creative and I had to take a step back from it. And I realized I was putting a lot of pressure on myself to get it done. And so I just backed away from it and let it go a little bit. And so I'm now back into it with my ideas and putting it down. Uh, really, probably the most difficult thing is getting the manual done. <laughs> yeah. Not the techniques, but getting the manual done. Shout out to John's team. I think Donna just put together a great manual for fascial cranial, and it has helped me save my wrist in writing. But hopefully your course comes out. Um, again, no pressure. I would definitely recommend taking equine myofascial release, even if you aren't planning on working with uh, the equine client. It has helped me with my understanding and deepening of myofascial release. Thank you so much, Tamara, for coming on to this podcast. Thank you for doing it. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to an episode of Myofascial Health. I help myofascial release therapists create their own websites, even if they don't know how to code. If you're just starting your own myofascial release practice and need your own website, or if you already have your own myofascial release practice and want to get your website audited for free, learn more about how I can help at www.myofascial.health/website.